What's up, all you fierce sons and daughters of liberty? Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm your co-host, one of your co-hosts, uh, Nicholas Lorimer, and I am joined today, of course, by my great colleague, Gabriel Krauser. Greetings. Yes. And um, we are, well, I finally got my car back, which I put in for repairs at the beginning of uh, lockdown. Uh, and it has now returned to me finally. It's a, it's a beautiful moment. But thankfully, due to the great plague that has ravaged the planet, I didn't really need it for several months. <laughs> so Yeah, I did. That, you, it worked out, eh? Yes. No, I've, I finally got it back. So I feel like, uh, like a, I've experienced a kind of spiritual liberation of a kind. It's amazing how important that car was to my psychology in a way. Indeed. It, it, your, your case does remind me a little bit of one of the great Soviet jokes that Ronald Reagan used to like to tell. Oh, yeah? Do you? So, so Reagan, you know, towards the end of the 80s, the, the Cold Wars, uh, he's, he's, he's trying to get America, he's trying to humanize average Russians and, and, and get Americans to think about Russian people as being different from the communist government. Yeah. Uh, and so he likes telling, he, he goes on tours and then he comes back and he tells jokes. Uh, by that that ordinary Russians are telling to show that they also think that uh, communism is a bit silly, and one of the jokes is true, about a, yeah. one of the one of the jokes is about a guy who goes to the store to buy a car, and they say, <laughs> yes. "Are you you want to buy a Lada?" He says, "Yes." What else? So they say, "Okay, it's like a hundred thousand rubles. You must pay now. We deliver the car later. You collect the car later when it's ready." So he pays, and he says, "When will it be ready?" And they say, oh, we have to build it first. So it could be some time. He says, well, how long? And they say, uh, about nine years. Uh, come back to us on September 4th. And he says, September 4th. Okay, okay, I'll come back on September 4th to collect the car in nine years' time. Uh, what time would you like me to come? And they say... Uh, well, come come at two o'clock, but why are you asking? He says, oh, well, the, the plumber said he was going to come that morning. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and I just think that there's something so true. Wait, 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 wait. I've got a segue. I've got a segue. I've got a segue. We finally actually got a segue on this podcast. Speaking of complete jokes... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, indeed. Very so good. You linked, brilliant, Nick. You, you linked an article uh, to one of the WhatsApp groups that we're both on uh, about a BBC story, which I started reading it and I just thought of about two paragraphs in, oh, this seems like rubbish, uh, maybe I'll finish it later. And then I stopped reading it and completely forgot about it. But to you, it left a deep impression because you actually finished the thing and it was as stupid as my spidey senses told me it was. Or so I'm led to believe. Uh, why don't you tell me and our listeners precisely what was in it? Yeah, okay. So I this this article is hilarious, but it's also infuriating. And... and that's the best intro. That's the best sort of framework that I can give to it. It's called Coronavirus in South Africa. Scientists explore surprise theory for low death rate. And it's by Andrew Harding, for who, for all I know, might be a solid journalist. He's he's definitely a career guy who's written many books about Africa and traveled through a lot of harsh circumstances. But what is the surprise discovery so that he's, South he's more scientists after? He's more experienced than your average social justice blogger who's now graduated to being a journalist and writes garbage Correct. on 
Correct. Yeah. yeah, he's he's the real deal. But this 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 piece is not. Okay, infection and death rates in many African countries have turned out to be much lower than initially feared. As the number of infection dips sharply in South Africa, experts there are exploring a startling hypothesis, as our African correspondent Andrew Harding reports from Johannesburg. Crowded townships, he writes, communal washing spaces, the impossibility of social distancing in communities where large families often share a single room. For months, health experts and politicians have been warning that living conditions in crowded urban communities in South Africa and beyond are likely to contribute to a rapid spread of the coronavirus. But some experts are now posing the question, what if the opposite is also true? What if those same crowded conditions also offer a possible solution to the mystery that has been unresolved for months? What if those conditions could prove to give people in South Africa some extra protection against COVID-19. And then he goes through some quotes and then uh, and then puts it like this. Uh, uh, hold on, I'm just looking for the quote. He says, oh man, I'm not finding the exact quote, but he says, it could be that poverty is the greatest defense against the coronavirus. That's kind of the that's the big well, headline. Big if true, As the huge kids say, if, big true. if true, completely out of touch with like the it best evidence. It also kind of runs contrary to the last two hundred years of human pr uh, prosperity and development, uh, which seems to suggest that the less poor you are, the longer you live. <laughs> well, so this is the point, right? In in one sense, it absolutely is true. Poverty is the best defense against the coronavirus because what poverty does is it kills you young, so it kills you before coronavirus can get to you. Yes. Okay. Uh, the 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 um, polite way of putting that is that uh, COVID uh, is is much more dangerous to older demographics, uh, and he and uh, but this is what uh, the BBC cor Africa correspondent writes. But as the pandemic drags on. And the statistical evidence builds up. Analysts appear increasingly reluctant to give demographics all the credit for the continent's successes. Age is not such a big factor, said Professor Karim. Now, who's Karim? He's the uh, big COVID BB BBC describes Africa, right? him. BBC describes him as widely seen as a leading voice on the pandemic response in South Africa and across the continent. He is, in fact, the uh, chief epidemiological advisor to the command council. Now, age is not such a big factor. Is It's just like a startling, startling claim, which is not true, as well, I will... It runs counter to all the other evidence we've had about COVID. If there's one thing that people seem to agree on, it's that it's massively more dangerous for older people than it is for younger people. This is like... Uh, if uh, you know, So much is controversial about COVID, but if there was something that was uncontroversial, it's that claim. Nicholas, you're wrong because the leading voice in Africa, Professor Karim, says, and I quote, age is not such a big factor. And what's the well, very next <laughs> sentence? What do you think the very next sentence is that the BBC writes? Early and aggressive lockdowns here in South Africa and elsewhere on the continent have clearly played a crucial role. Clear messaging about masks and the provision of oxygen supplies have also been important. So these guys are saying Africa has so really we've got such an efficient government than Europe because we have a more efficient government because we locked down earlier. We locked down at the same time as Europe, by the way, and because we've got better messaging about masks and hand washing and more provision of oxygen. So 
This is just, I mean, this is huh. properly ludicrous. And you, and you say this guy spent his career traveling around Africa and writing books about it. So I went and looked up the data tables, and this is flippin' irritating. The National Health Department and the National uh, Institute for Communicable Diseases was regularly publishing death tables by age breakdown until July 1st. The last that South African journalists have written about the death tables was on June 24th. The July 1st one wasn't really written about, but I found it on their website by going through every single media update on every single day for the last two months. That is the last time I've checked all of them. So for some reason, they stopped publishing death tables. Today, I spent about an hour and a half on the phone with the Department of Health and with the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. I couldn't find anyone who's prepared to even try and give me an explanation as to why. But based on the July 1st data, which is perfectly well, consistent with the June 26th data and the June 24th data and all of the data going before that. Here is a breakdown of deaths per million in different age categories in South Africa. Between zero and nine, there was 0.1 of a death. Between 10 and 20, there were 0.3 of a death. Between 20 and 29, one and a half deaths per million. Between 30 and 39, six deaths per million. 40 and 49, 12 deaths. I don't know if you're seeing a pattern, but we've gone from zero to I, 12. I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to go out over my skis here, but I think that it might be that you're more likely to die if you're over a certain age. Nicholas, I think you're onto something, but just just hold on. Okay, so, so sorry, uh, I was 30 to 39 is actually 15, 15 deaths per million. 40 to 49 is 49 deaths per million. 50 to 59 is 136 deaths per million. 60 to 69 is 223 deaths per million. 70 to 79 is 300 deaths per million. And 80 plus is 540 deaths per million. It's even more stark if you go, if you take the, we've got data on how many cases have there been recorded in every age bracket. So you can go deaths per case in each age bracket. And up to 60-year-olds, up to 59-year-olds, uh, the highest is 21 deaths per, uh, per 10,000 cases. No, wait, per 1,000 cases. 21 deaths per 1,000 cases. When you get to 80 pluses, when you get to 70-year-olds, it's 90 deaths. So it's six times more. And when you get to 80 pluses, it's 100 deaths. So it's, sorry, it's, it's four times more to six times more deaths per cases in those age brackets. And if you just go deaths, it's 10 times more. So, you know, look, you look at the table, look, I, it's like, it's absurd. Old people I, are, are I, literally, from Swedish data, old people over the age of 65 are 100 times more likely to die of this disease than people under the age of 65. And one of the reasons that that matters is that they've got much better testing. So they're much better at picking up how many more people are getting the disease that yes, are older. And yes. so you're much more likely to become sympathetic uh, symptomatic and actually show antigen response if you're older as well. So, I mean, it just is the least controversial thing that age is the single biggest factor in the disease. But here we have Professor Kareem saying it's not a, such a big factor, which can then be followed up by early and aggressive lockdowns here in South Africa and elsewhere have clearly played a crucial role, which is not true. The earliest Look, lockdowns of borders, which I is know, the first thing that matters, happen in East Asia. I know I know it's been uh, difficult for kind of everyone in our realm of, uh, of I don't know, of work. To, to suddenly have to become epi uh, epidemiologists in about, you know, five minutes since COVID happened. But 
it really would have helped if he read the data instead of just believing what Kareem was telling him. Also, Kareem has been saying on the very same day that Kareem is saying, you know, the reason we've got so few deaths is not that we've got uh, so few old people, but it's actually because we've got so few cases, because the number of cases that we've detected in the country is much, much lower than the UK, which this BBC article gleefully points out because the Brits love nothing more than to say that the former colonies are outperforming the Brits. Oh yeah, the Brits but on the very, themselves. On the very same well, day a particular that particular type of Brit does. A particular type of Brit does. On the very same day that these that our chief epidemiologist is arguing that we've got low case numbers because of early and aggressive lockdowns, we have data coming out of the Western Cape where someone finally rubbed two brain cells together and said, you know, we've got lots of people with HIV coming in for blood tests to check their CD4 counts, to check their viral load, to see if they need to have their medication adjusted. Why don't we use those same blood samples? and test them for coronavirus. That way we can get a kind of random sample to see how the virus is actually spread. You know, random sample testing. Genius. Okay, and what did it turn out? 37% of people with HIV have COVID. Whoa. So that's pretty interesting. Feels like something that should be reported a lot more widely. And they did the same thing with pregnant women who also have to get blood tests and are a random sample, and it was like 40% of pregnant women have COVID. Well, what, 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 uh, and, and you've read the dates more closely than I have, but there was a particular week when uh, we suddenly just cut the number of tests we were doing per week massively to like, it, it like halved. And ever since then, it hasn't gone above, much above 20,000, I think, um, per day. Yeah. So we cut, we cut our tests, you know, just when the lockdown was getting super unpopular, the cigarette and alcohol ban, uh, <laughs> suddenly... We cut our community screening tests. We were going out actively looking for cases. We were doing 12,000 of those tests a day. We cut that down to 1,000. And uh, all of a sudden, there were less cases. And at the same time, huh. people stopped showing up as much for, for two hospitals, which is true, to get tested. But one of the problems with that is that I literally on my Facebook saw three people being like, I'm sniveling, but I've got hay fever. So I'm not going to go get tested because <laughs> you know, I've just got hay fever. Like the weather was getting nice. We, the testing came down just as the weather came nice uh, and sunny, just as the sort of uh, the, the, the blossoms come out before the rain, like the jasmine and the wisteria and the roses, things that throw out the pollens. So you've got a lot more people sniveling because they really do have hay fever, but that's also masking people that might have COVID, which to young people really is just like the flu, unless you have an initial high viral load. Uh, it's just like a common cold. Uh, so you've got less people who are eager to go and get tested. All of this was entirely overlooked, but none of that's as bad as the first uh, imposition of the lockdown where Salim Karim said, this is unique. I mean, in this article, he also says South Africa's experience is unique, as if Vietnam, uh, Vietnam, South Korea, Taiwan haven't done much better. Uh, 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 anyway, he said that it's unique on on the second week of lockdown or third week of lockdown, because it's the, literally the day that we imposed lockdown uh, in, on March 27th, our cases started to fall. But what he didn't point, yeah. then he said there could be three reasons for this. One is that the testing's bad, but he said the testing hasn't changed. It's not true. The testing <laughs> graph went up and down at exactly the same rate as the cases graph. You know, and then it, the second it, thing it, he what, says is maybe the, the testing's not good enough. Yeah. It re- uh, the kids, uh, the kids say it really gets your noggin a joggin. <laughs> yes, dude. And the worst part of it, 
The worst part of it is in the same speech that Salim Karim announced that we had the world's most successful lockdown on week three and and was basically declaring that we, we you know, we, we, we've clapped the virus big time. He didn't say that it's going to go away, but he's, you know, he said we've got the, a uniquely a unique trajectory in terms of flattening the curve using our lockdown strategy of just not testing anymore, uh, which is unique, by the way. Um, in the same very moment, he says, uh, in the same speech, he says, you know, it's very important to take note of the fact that once you impose a change on social behavior, you're only going to pick up the effect on testing numbers two weeks later, 10 days to two weeks later. And you know why so he says on. that? Not to draw. No, 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 Nick, Nick, don't start thinking now. He's not trying to say that to draw attention to the very strange oddity of our lockdown having an immediate effect, which is impossible. He drew attention to that when looking at the case numbers three weeks after lockdown to say that some of those cases would have been created before the lockdown. Dude, if this is not making sense to you, it's because you're not being paid <laughs> enough to sing Rama Gloria. Obviously. Uh, and okay, you noted... The, this piece you, is not you, over, Nick. I just want you to oh, know, no. this piece gets worse. How could it get worse? Dude, it gets worse. Okay, so the BBC finally gets to its point. How could poverty be so good? Well, part of the reason poverty is good is because you've got more socialist governments that are more eager to lock down, and, and our lockdown's much better than the UK. But the other way that it's really good... <laughs> The other way, which is genius, is that scientists at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Analytics Unit at Baraguana Hospital in Soweto have been wondering if one missing factor may lie inside a glorified chest freezer in their laboratory on the outskirts of Johannesburg. The freezer, whose temperature is kept at a minus 180 degrees centigrade, thanks to liquid nitrogen, contains metal canisters storing five year old human blood samples, or to be more specific, extracts from blood cells known as PBMCs acquired during an earlier influenza vaccine trial in Soweto. And so their idea was, if we can test that old blood from years and years ago and find that it's got uh, antigens or, or, or other evidence that it might be the kind of blood that you'd want to beat COVID, because, it, because the thought is poor people are exposed to a lot more diseases, so they're much more yeah. likely to have picked up on some kind of herd, so some kind of antecedent yeah. immunity, which, by the way, Salim Karim... Our chief epidemiologist, and according to this guy, the leading light in all of Africa, he said consistently that this is a completely unique virus and that no one has any herd immunity. Anyway, that little contradiction is not pointed out in this article. The idea here is that poor people have more natural immunity. Now, that might be true. I think that is a very interesting idea. And, and we've argued that yeah. on this podcast literally from the beginning. Yeah. But the question is, how do you prove it? Well, you go and find these old blood samples in Baragwanath Hospital and test them. And guess what? They tested them and they found all kinds of, 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 <laughs> Nicholas, they Useful found COVID-19. They found COVID-19 basically in the blood. And they're like, this is amazing. These guys yeah. were, you know, they must have had immunity because they, they, they've had something very much like this virus long ago. But then, but then. So I think, I think this then, is just a point that's worth, yeah, yeah, yeah. Finish, finish. But then, in the very last paragraph, the third last paragraph, it reads as, as follows. Unfortunately, as the scientists began preparing to test the PBMC samples in the laboratory, they spotted a problem. Someone had forgot to keep the fridge on. So these frozen blood samples had warmed up and were thus able to, like, take on atmospheric uh, aerosol 
viruses of all kinds of kinds. Oh my god! So it's completely useless. We're very disappointed. We were all ready, but unfortunately, this thing happened," said Doctor Kaurav Quatra, who's leading the experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so now the team has to find new samples to start all over again. Oh, so this yeah. BBC article's headline should have been like Baragwan of Hospital has been so load shed or something that uh, it, a potentially very interesting hypothesis cannot be studied using its blood samples. Uh, well, and, I, I, it's, I, I, and its epidemiologists think that age is not a big factor, but in fact, across the world and even in South Africa, people that are 80 years so, older, a hundred are a hundred times more, more likely, likely than to people, die. Literally a hundred times more likely than people <laughs> 40 or younger. Yeah, no, this is this is a bit awkward. Um I I, I am uh, fairly sympathetic to the idea and you've mentioned uh, that article by that's I think she, uh, she, that Swiss person who suggested that there may be some uh, previous immunological defense that the coronavirus is not as novel as we perhaps thought that it might have been. Yeah. Um, and, and that's actually one of the things that's prevented the sort of potential total holocaust of, of human beings that 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 may, might potentially have occurred from such an infectious disease. Yeah, um, correct. There's, there's, oh, two major, there's two major there's two major. There was also a there was also a Spanish test. They were testing, I think, bits of sewage water in their in their because this has been one of the things is that COVID shows up in sewage. Yeah, well, COVID um, so strands. Often, yeah, it's, and so you can you can give an, get an idea of infective infective level uh, level of infection by by looking at the uh, the sewage. So they tested one from quite a while ago before COVID is thought to have emerged, and they found from 2019 the, from April yeah. 2019 they found and coronavirus. They found there was something there. Uh, so it might have been, it was only one sample uh, that they yeah, found yeah. it in. And, the, and so it might have been a mistake, but it also could have been that there was a particular kind of cold that wasn't very severe going around at that time. And that that gave people at least some kind of partial immunity to, to COVID. And this might explain why in a lot of places we see infections go up to like 20, 30% of the population uh, and then start to come down. It might be because people have some sort of underlying immunity because they had a cold four years ago or six months ago that that helped defend against this but yeah. anyway you were going to explain the two theories yeah so well, so the two basic things to keep in mind and this is part of the reason that i um want to go study bioethics at new york university next year i've sort of uh, been accepted into the program into the master's program they've awarded me a scholarship uh, if i can just raise a bit more money then i'm definitely going to go is that is that there's something very fun me yeah you know hell's teeth <laughs> who has money I these days money. i give some money to that um but 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 so there's like there's something very strange about the way that the science and this is developed and that is that there's there's proper scientists proper science is always a multivariable analysis you know you throw the cannonball through the air and one thing that's important is what's gravity doing the other thing that's important is what's friction doing they're, they're two different variables and in this case, one of the variables is a virus and the other variable is a human being. So there's anthropogenic uh, issues and there's viral centric issues. And on the virus side, the thing to look at is antecedent immunity and, uh, and viral mutations. Generally, viruses evolve in such a way as to become less lethal because you are the milkshake and the virus wants to drink you. And if it kills you, then it can no longer drink the milkshake. Okay. 
That yeah, is and also, a scientific also if it's, argument. If it's more deadly, uh, it then will engender more response to it from the people who are infected. And so that might also uh, suppress it. Whereas if it was like um, less deadly, if it was just a cold, then no one's really going to make a big fuss out of suppressing it. Okay, so there's there's a viral centric and there's the anthropocentric, and 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 the and the most important multivariable analysis to do is to what extent is uh, sort of a, a, a saturation point or herd immunity reached, because some people have gotten SARS-CoV-2 and so now they're immune, and other people were already basically immune because they had other forms of the coronavirus which triggered the right, which which means they've uh, their T cells are, have figured out how to beat this thing. And and no one knows for sure. The other question is, to what extent ha has social distancing, voluntary measures, maybe some involuntary measures, uh, changed the virus's ability to transmit? And one of the problems with the the viral-centric guys is that they notice, for example, and Michael Levitt does sometimes make this mistake, who's a great South African Nobel laureate, sort of notice in his models, he models as if once lockdown ends, everyone's going to go get back to business as usual. So he looks at countries like 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 Germany, where lockdown is lifted, but the virus doesn't uh, grow massively after that. It grows a little bit, but it doesn't grow massively. And he Except assumes that all of the explaining factor, basically all of the explaining factor, he's, he he models for people that are very old and vulnerable staying at home, yeah. but he doesn't model for people like you and me uh, continuing to act strangely well, because we want to protect yeah, others. I, so I you need to model both. You need I, hadn't been, I hadn't been out of my house in a serious way uh, since March until I got my car. <laughs> yeah. So both factors, both factors are relevant. How much has social distancing, mask wearing, all that kind of stuff, how much has that influenced the game? And how much has antecedent immunity and viral evolution mutation affected the game? And one thing on viral mutation is just before I read this BBC piece, I read uh, a study that just flippin' blew my mind. Oh, my God. I mean, the study itself is not bad, but the way it's covered, this thing is written about all over the American press, all over the British press. It's also written about by the World Economic Forum as a breakthrough study showing that the coronavirus, we now have some kind of confirmation that the coronavirus is mutating in a way that makes it less lethal. And yes. they look at the most important protein, which we discussed uh, back when I was in on the farm sort of in April, which is off eight. And I, I, I sort of explained this sort of uh, Chinese data scientists way of interpreting the virus, which is that, uh, I mean, he, 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 they, they, they generated a computer model of the virus. They had the gene code and, and these, these wonderful um, data sources that basically have every protein known to man, every DNA strand known to man. And you can kind of create your own viruses, create your own, antigens, you can model how a virus will affect a liver versus a blood cell versus a capillary cell versus a isn't, lung cell and so on. Isn't the modern age and, great? Yeah, and they were the first guys to suggest that uh, coronavirus is not deadly because it's getting into your lungs, it's deadly because it's getting into your blood. And now it's very, you know, now that science seems pretty clear that it's your blood cells uh, which are which are a huge part of the problem for people who, who register the, the lethal cytokine storms. Anyway, their way of of modeling it was that they found that my my metaphor for it is that it's as if once the everyone knows how the coronavirus gets into a cell this the spike protein kind of unlocks the door and then it gets in there 
But once it's in there, the question is, once the little floating around, now the virus is no longer like a soccer ball. Now it's like a bunch of little strands floating around inside a cell. And the question is, how does it replicate and does it do things to disrupt your body's chemistry in a way that is most likely to trigger a cytokine storm? And these guys found that uh, that SARS-CoV-2 is likely to be very good at destabilizing hemes, which are the little guys that carry around your oxygen in your blood. Yeah, and the way the that they found that red red blood cells, yeah. Well, so it's inside the red blood cell. Yeah, inside um, the red blood cell. And and what they found is that it's sort of like a hijacking. It's like you've got your little heme carrying around its little oxygen, and then you've got like off one, which kind of comes in from the passenger side door and kind of pulls that open. And then you've got like off 9B, I can't remember these numbers precisely, and it pulls over the driver's seat. And then off eight is kind of the guy in command, and then the guy who swoops in and pulls out the keys. And that really screws everything up and gives the virus a nice way to replicate. And so off eight was, was always a very important protein. And the, these scientists identified in vitro that if you delete one of the genes in off eight, uh, then it's much less likely to be seriously damaging. And they noticed that this deletion has evolved in coronavirus in the human population. So they do tests and they find that some people have original wild coronavirus, they call it, and some people have this off eight deletion of the 382 gene. And so they wondered to themselves, you know, in a test tube, it seems like it's less lethal if, if it's got this mutation. What about in the real population? Well, they go to Singapore where they find 300 cases that are over. So everyone's either died or recovered. And there's full case history and there's lots of extra blood samples. So you can go fishing around over time and see sort of retrospectively how these cases evolved. And the hypothesis they want to test is that the people with the mutator gene would have uh, had a much higher survival rate in terms of morbidity yeah. and mortality than the people with the original wild virus. So they test this hypothesis and they come to the conclusion that no one with the mutated gene needed oxidation. No one died. So it seems like it's much milder. That's, and this that's excellent is, news. And, and this is the good news story that's reported around the world. But I don't know if the journalists read the study uh, and just like decided to lie or whether they didn't read the study and they're incompetent. But I read the study. The initial sample is 292 people, but the real sample is only about 140, of which 29 have the mutation and 92 have the wild virus, and the other 10 or so have a bit of both. So the 10 or so that have a bit of both aren't really useful because you can't tell what they're proving. So it's the 92 against the 29. So 29 is already a pretty small sample, but age is the most important factor in COVID morbidity and mortality. Nicholas... What proportion of the people <laughs> oh, that no. didn't need oxygen do you think were over 65 years old? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know, but I know where this is going. <laughs> 3%. What absolute number, what actual number of over 65-year-olds did they have with the mutated virus in their sample? One. They had one 65-year-old 
who didn't need oxygen and they drew the conclusion you know, that this thing is fine and the world economic forum made it the like their chief strategist literally wrote an article affirming this my uh, problem this is, this is this is a tangent a, but i think yeah. i think there's actually a lot of problems with medical research in general uh especially when it's interpreted by the public by people who are not doctors and statisticians and this is, I think, a really good example of that exact problem. Dude, so these two stories, the BBC story, which says that poverty is great, not because it kills people young so that they don't die of coronavirus later on, but actually because uh, they are hardy and they get exposed to more germs, so they've got natural immunity. But by the way, we can't actually prove that because we forgot to keep the fridge on on our children's blood samples. <laughs> <laughs> and the other story of a mutation of the virus that's been proven to make it less lethal, which, by the way, was based on a sample of one over 65-year-old person. I mean, the thing is, the people who have written up these, who've written this up, it's they have made millions and millions and millions in their careers by doing this kind of thing. And frankly, I'm kind of in the position where I I would like some money, like I would like some of that money. It doesn't have to go to me. It could go to like a 13-year-old child with a calculator <laughs> and an abacus and like four brain cells and and just a little bit of spine, you know? Yeah. It's, it's outrageous. It's properly outrageous that the most important story, I mean, this is global. It just doesn't get, there's nothing more yeah, attention this, grabbing than the coronavirus. This is very good. Um, I mean, I, I can't remember what it was, but I remember Nick, reading an article. This is not good. This is very, very bad. I remember reading an this article. Is the end of civilization. Uh, what was it? It was a few years ago where they suggested that something like half of a lot of medical research things, and it, and it varied by, by discipline, um, with I think psychology being one of the worst, uh, could not, where, where reports reported in peer-reviewed journals could not be replicated <laughs> when further studies. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, no, you know, who, who, the guy who did that study is Ioannidis, the, the head of Johns Hopkins. He showed that like of the top 45 gold standard, most cited, most trusted, most important articles in the last 25 years, like only 23, like what was it? I think it was only 23 of them had even anyone try to replicate the experiments. So yes. half of them, no one even tried. They were just like, this is definitely true. And then the other half, of the half that they did try to redo the experiments, more than half of them, when they were trying to redo the experiments, they were shown to be false. The, 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 the findings were shown to have been sort of statistical anomalies or, or, or there was a bias in the sampling or there was something, there was a design flaw in the, uh, in the experiment. And yet no. they remained gold standard. That didn't do anything to make them less trusted, by the way. Yes. And this is why uh, Ioannidis is... Paper was like these... you know, the last thing you should trust is an academic journal article, and 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 he was trying. He wasn't. He wasn't trying to be an ass. He was like, I the, I want science to be better. I don't want people to abandon science. Um, yes, but this is not the way to do it. We need better oh standards. God, dude, it's just. No, that's that's very important. And I think weird. I think, I, I we we do actually have a great opportunity for a segue here. So I just want to end by basically saying that. Uh, you know, this, I think, is as a result of universities becoming far more like guilds that are in, in, interested in preserving their sort of close-knit 
uh, clique rather than actually doing anything useful. Um, and this is a problem that's far worse in the humanities than in the hard sciences like medicine and, and the other, you know, engineering and physics and all that. But I think that it's uh, it's seeped through to pretty much everyone. And I think that's at least a partial cause of this problem. Um, yeah, but not, here's not, the e not everyone, but 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 far too many. Here's here's the segue. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's of course not everyone. We still do do good science. Some people are doing it out there, but uh, just yeah. not enough. Including um, perhaps the Russians, which is very disturbing, because they're, they're they've just published in the, they've just published in the Lancet uh, the the review of their vaccine trial, and it looks very good. That's uh, that's that's hopefully. I know you don't want to hear it, Nick. Nick. Nick doesn't like the no, Russians. No, no, no. <laughs> but no, I don't. I don't. I have. I'm going to admit my bias fully here. Um, and I think that's good news. It's just uh, this might be a good time to start uh, making sure that results are replicated. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. Um, well, they're going to try it so, on millions of Russians now, so we'll see. Yeah, Nick, take us to our next topic because I'm going to explode so in fury. Yes, no, I can tell. Uh, speaking of uh, small data points changing an entire conversation and getting a lot of people excited. So there's the segue that I was looking for. Well done. Um, in the U.S. election, there was an entire sort of news cycle, particularly on the right, and I, I know many of our colleagues um, were, were kind of buying into this hypothesis. Uh, and this is based around uh, the idea that the race, the U.S. presidential race, had turned very sharply in the polling and that Biden was beginning to collapse. And the reason for this was because his response to the uh, riots and in Kenosha and and other places in the US was inadequate. Now there's some reason to to think there's there's some evidence to support this idea. For one, the Biden campaign has taken the riots a lot more seriously, um, which suggests that the internal polling that they might have has suggested that this is a key issue. Um, taken them more seriously in what sense? In the sense that he gave a speech, he gave a sort of almost half an hour speech saying uh, violence is bad. Uh, looting is bad. He had put out statements in the past saying this, but now he came out and said, now he didn't name Antifa by name, which was a bit of an oopsie. He only mentioned um, basically sort of right-wing militias. Uh, mm. So that was not so great because right-wing militias have been involved in some places, yeah. but they haven't been the overwhelming yeah. uh, majority of, of the, the violent people. But so the Dems are taking it more seriously than the Dems used to take it. Yes, the Democrats are taking at least the Biden campaign. I don't know about the Democrats, because <laughs> um, those are those are different things. Uh, are, are are taking it taking it more seriously. So that's interesting. Um, but there was this entire news cycle saying, "Look, uh, the the thing is changing, and the whole the whole the whole edifice of the election is going to flip now because people are going to go back to Trump on the basis that these Kenosha riots have." Uh, have changed the conversation. 538, Nate Silver, who's this sort of pollster, he does lean left, definitely, um, but he's, I think, quite a relatively honest I, guy. I think, yeah, I, think honest. A, I think he can be a, a bit overboard in the ability to model and uh, and, and, and the, the power of data and all that kind of thing. He's one of these people who I think thinks, he, he's very much on board with the whole, you know, we can just sort of model everything. Um, and I think he does overstate that case. But he pointed out that, well, there's actually not been that many polls and we should really just wait a bit before we all start bashing off our hot takes about how Trump is poised for total victory now. 
And yeah. lo and behold, if you actually look at one of the things that was flying around, particularly on the right, which is uh, a graph showing, and this is from the site Real Clear Politics, which is one of the big sites where people go to go and look for polling, um, that Michigan had suddenly tightened massively. And you can see the graphs, Biden shoots down and Trump shoots up. But this is a small problem. If you actually look at the number of polls done in Michigan on the Real Clear website, you can see that since the 26th of July, there have been three polls. One by the University of Wisconsin, which was from 26th July until 6th of uh, August. Um, one from the 21st of August to the 23rd of August, and one from the 14th of August to the 23rd of August. That's it. Three data points. And of those polls, and, and remember, America is a place that polls a lot, and there's a lot of conflict over which the correct polling methodology is. Um, as yeah. we discovered in South Africa, there's, you know, polls can significantly differ. Uh, the IRR's polling on the election was significantly different from Ipsos, for example. Yeah. Um, but of these polls, one had shown Biden up by four, one had shown Biden up by six, and one had shown Trump up by two. That was the most recent one. And that was the one that everyone was buying, was saying, uh, was causing the, the thing here. It was, it, that was what had pushed the graph up. It's by a group called the Trafalgar Group, who are a polling firm. Uh, they showed Trump up by two. And the Trafalgar Group is interesting because they consistently rate Republicans and Trump more highly than all other polls. And you uh -huh. can see this in polls that of all states. And the reason for this, according to Wikipedia, is that the Trafalgar Group adjusts its polls for a, quote, social desirability effect, the hypothesized tendency of some voters to calibrate their responses to polls towards what they believe the survey taker would like to hear. Now, that's an interesting theory. And basically, this is the looking for shy Trump voters. Yeah. Um, and I think there might be something in that. There is social pressure definitely on on Trump voters to, uh, shall we say, report differently perhaps than they might because there's a lot yes. of social cost. Yeah. Um, but there's big unanswered questions about how big that effect is and how serious, yeah, how seriously we should take that effect. Um, yeah, and you don't and test that. You don't test how big is the effect by making up a number, building it into your poll, and then saying, yes. look, Trump's more popular than Biden. And consistently across all polls, Trafalgar does quite regular polling, which is in a lot of states particularly is actually quite rare. There are not that many state polls, which drives me absolutely up the wall. Um, they always show Trump ahead. Uh, so, for example, here, uh, the, the most recent poll that's come out on Real Clear Politics is Trafalgar saying that Trump is up by three in Florida. They're the only poll to say that. Now, they did call Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, no, sorry, Michigan and Pennsylvania correct last time that they said Trump was going to win. But it's equally possible that they just basically got lucky, that they thought, well, people don't want to admit that they're voting for Trump, so we're going to dust up, and then Trump won anyway. And it wasn't actually to do with their uh, their data. It might be more due to, and this is what 538 suggests, uh, Nate Silver suggests, that was due to um, people switching their votes at the last minute. And, because uh, of with Hillary Clinton, Jim, James because Comey. The letter, yes. Yes. Uh, if if you if you poll people who decided basically in the last week, Trump won them pretty substantially. So that might be a better explanation. Anyway, the jury I think is out, but my tendency here is to is to suggest that Trafalgar should not be if they're the only people saying something. It's either because they're super geniuses who have 
clairvoyance beyond what us mere mortals can can gleam, or they might be making a mistake. Now you never know, and I mean that. Yeah, sincerely. I mean I, I yeah I and I am sympathetic to the shy Trump voter hypothesis. Yes, so, I think, so am I. I, I think there's a huge the difference between yeah. I think there's a huge difference between being shy in business, being shy on on Facebook, being shy on Twitter. Uh, being shy at the coffee shop even and being shy in a sort of polling scenario where you've got good reason to think it's private. I mean, I think some people will still be shy. But I, sure. but again, the, the frustration here is that it's still an open question because part of the thought building up into the 2016 election and into the 2018 uh, House elections was that there were shy Trump voters. And between then and now, one would think that there would have been enough time for really good statisticians to have demonstrated uh, the extent of the effect, either zero or a lot or somewhere in between, yeah. you know? And and it's just like, it's like science's job really should be to answer the most practically urgent questions that we have. And I do have a lot of sympathy for scientists to, uh, you know, figure out that, uh, you know, 40% of people like dogs and 50% of people like cats and 10% of people think it's, you know, it's perfectly okay to like both. But I do wish that there was, you know, I think that's okay if we're also doing the real deal. And there's something very frustrating about the, 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 the sort of pace of progress. And I don't think it's for lack yes, of funding. I, I don't think it's for lack of public interest. I think it's, I think it partly is the journalist's I, you know, I think it's it's quite complicated, but I think that one of the scary things about doing a real study is that you don't know what the answer is. I've been arguing yes. <laughs> that social distancing is very important, and I want scientists to figure it out because maybe it's not, and then they, we then we should change, and mm. then I should say I'm sorry for for encouraging people to to mask and social distance, and I'm going to feel pretty stupid about the fact that I didn't see my friends for months. But yeah, exactly. you know, I I want to figure that out. I don't know. I'm pretty confident about certain things. I've got good arguments for why I think what, what I think, but a real study is always going into the unknown. And as 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 the world has become more siloed and entrenched in sort of uh, in a kind of faith-based way of thinking, uh, I think that I think that even scientists are afraid of the truth, and so aren't designing their experiments to figure it out and 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 this is my complaint about so much of the science around herd immunity antecedent immunity versus um uh human interventions is that yes. the, the human interventionist guys have almost never in in the in the sort of majority white world have almost never uh tested their their hypotheses against the hypothesis that actually the controlling factor here is genetic mutation or antecedent immunity. And likewise, in South Africa and in the UK, which is the only place where I've really read studies in the major uh, outside of the Far East, the guys who are very focused on the virus almost never test their hypotheses against uh, the, the anthropogenic changes. They're just like lockdowns uh, show no correlation with spread, which is true. So therefore, we'll leave all humans out of it. But lockdowns, that's just government. Like there's this gaping hole between yeah, what way, governments what can do, do and what viruses can, see, can do and what actual can people see, can do. Yeah. And it's weird and we because, see, Nick, we I, just want, I just want to point mobility this out. Data. Exactly. You are a person. I know you're a person Allegedly. because I'm speaking to you and we've hung out. I'm a person. I can guarantee you that. And I can guarantee you that every single one of our listeners is a person. It's flipping weird that scientists who are also persons – 
have been doing experiments to communicate information to persons and that the one thing that has been most conspicuously left out is persons. Governments, lots of talk, lots of thought. Virus, lots of talk, lots of thought. But human beings somehow like have largely been forgotten. And it's, 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 uh, it's, I don't know. It is funny, right? It's got to be funny. Yes. Um, there is there is another interesting thing that's uh, that skewed polls in 2016, uh, which which caused a lot of pollsters to to be slightly wrong about about Trump's victory, and that was that Trump in a lot of ways was a kind of more transitional candidate. He uh, was more appealing to sort of working class, non university educated white voters in the United States, and he was uh, he put off. Uh, suburban white voters with college degrees more. So what effect in effect happened is there was a slight transition and a lot of the samples that uh, pollsters got didn't weight this factor correctly. They basically just ignored whether you were college educated or not. Yeah. And that turned out to be a decisive thing, which is where if you go back to a lot of those polls and you, you change the sample a little bit so that you say, okay, well, actually, uh, uh, we, yeah, we're going like to take into account do... college education. Yeah, it's like if you sample 100 people and only 10 of them uh, are just have a matric, they don't have a college degree, Yeah. Then, then you can be like, well, hold on, it turns out that like nine out of that 10 wanted to vote for Trump and that proportion of the population is actually like 40%. It's really big, yeah. They're the biggest so group of you, people who don't vote. Yeah, yeah. then we're going we're gonna to multiply it up. We're going to factor it up. And then suddenly you start getting the... The, the old poll data starts looking like the actual result. Yes. And again, exactly. it's like human beings. How could we forget human beings? Like, wh- man, one of the things that human beings uh, seem to define themselves by is their level of education. And yes. It seems like a really You're weird thing to, to overlook. That. Yeah. Like we're so obsessed uh, and, with race, but, gender, and like, just, what about like who okay, who hangs out with who? Like, yeah. Fancy exactly. university grads like to hang out with fancy university grads. Not totally, but that's like generally uh, you see it a lot. So why don't we build that into our model? And uh, there was actually a character who we uh, who we who we who we will probably discuss on some future episode of the of the podcast. Although we're still talking about how to do it, a guy called Charles Murray, and he wrote a book. Uh, he wrote many books, but one of the books he wrote was I think called Coming Apart. And it's actually about that very phenomenon of people with university degrees in America, at least. And probably I think it's replicable across much of the world. Um, it's very becoming very socially distant in a lot of ways from people without college degrees. Yeah. Um, and and it's and taking that into effect into account would have would have revealed to to pollsters, but the point here being that this time because of also 2018 we saw saw the same thing happen in U.S. elections where college pollsters uh, college degree people voted in similar ways um in fact it was probably more serious there uh it's very likely that all the competent pollsters which is not all of them <laughs> will yes. have now taken this into account and Correct. will probably report uh, more accurate results now of course there could always be something we're in a weird time um and there is a theory that uh you know polls are, are going to be ultimately wrong because of one of the things that they determine whether you're a likely voter in a poll is uh, based on the fact that you you have voted in the past. This is how a lot of polling data is collected because that's a very strong indicator whether you're going to vote again. But there's yeah. a theory that the Trump campaign, um, boosted by fears of rioting, 
could mobilize a huge number of people to come out and uh, people that and haven't vote. voted before. Yeah, yeah. and, and vote who've never voted before. And those people will vote for Trump and that will make all the polls look like rubbish. Yeah. I don't think that's likely, but I could be very wrong. Yeah, and um, then there's another theory that because people are voting from uh, distance uh, to avoid the plague and there's more room to have post-in votes, that yes. it'll be easier to get kind of uh, poor, disgruntled people who might be very favorable to the Democrats and don't usually vote for them because they kind of feel like Ugh, both parties just leave us behind uh, to, 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 to get their votes out might be an easier thing to do. And that's yeah. often caricatured by the Republican Party as like, you know, now all the drug addicts and prostitutes that usually are too busy to vote on the day, busy taking drugs, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden's machine is going to be turned uh, out, turned them all out. Carrying, um, carrying little letters to their front door and being like, dude, I know you're stoned, but why don't you just put an X next to Biden's name and we'll post it yeah, off for you. Called, it's called yeah. uh, vote harvesting, I think, is the, is the technical term. Yeah, so it's another theory, I don't, which I, I'm also skeptical about that theory. Um, but I suppose either could be true. Maybe both are true and they end up canceling each other out. Maybe neither are true. Yeah, that's, that's, I, that's a good I thing do, about elections. You really can't tell ahead of time necessarily. But I think the probability of, of chances is that, I mean... Uh, people have said, oh, Joe Biden's in the same place that Hillary, Hillary Clinton was at this point in the election. Yes, that's correct, because Hillary Clinton had a big convention bounce, but the, she then proceeded to plummet into the ground. Yeah. Um, and, I'm and, not sure. Uh, and there's not going to be a James Comey moment for Joe Biden, I don't think. Well, I, I, can there I? might be. I, I, I mean, of course, there might. And, 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 I, and I, I, I can tell you what it is, uh, quickly, which is that... There has been in focus groups and stuff in the U.S. a lot of people saying they want to see the debates, which this is a sentiment that's been expressed more so than usual. And this is probably because the Trump campaign has made a big deal, as Trump himself says, Joe Biden doesn't even know he's alive, <laughs> of making the claim that Joe Biden is basically mentally disabled because he's too old and senile. Yes. And so if he goes into a debate and he has, shall we say, a senior moment... <laughs> <laughs> he does something pretty odd on stage. Yeah, if he calls his wife or his he, sister again or something. Yeah. Or he forgets where he is or does something very odd or just comes off very badly. Uh, this this killed Rick Perry's entire presidential run in, what was it, 2012, yes. I think. When he, he was said, the Texan. And I'm get, yeah, the Texan governor, very popular, very successful, good record, goes up on stage and says, I'm going to eliminate three federal departments. They are this department, this department, and... And 30 seconds of silence followed, and he said, <laughs> I can't remember. And his entire presidential campaign collapsed. Now, that could kill yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, but it is worth noting that there are a relatively small number, even compared to previous elections in the US, of undecided voters. So, yeah, that undecided is the, that's the unicorn, hey? Uh, I, and, I've got to say, one, I, I find one, something one more, very one more thing about that point on uh, Joe Biden's sanity, but go ahead. One more thing. Uh, voting in some states basically starts in half a month. That's when postal voting opens. So the campaigns, actually, it's a lot of it's going to be decided sooner than we think. Um, but anyway, you were saying about Joe Biden's sanity. Yeah, so I sent, I think I might have sent you this piece. Uh, there's, I saw a piece in The Blaze, which is sort of Glenn Beck traditionally, hey, this is Glenn Beck, traditionally a pretty right-wing kind of public American publication, which said... Uh, Joe Biden uh, wanted to leave the stage, but he allowed 
one Fox reporter to ask him a last question and he was totally embarrassed. But if you watch the video, I mean, the Fox reporter says, you know, Joe, you said you knew all along how serious the virus was and that you shouldn't be, uh, people shouldn't be hanging out, uh, but uh, that you knew this from January, but why is it that in March you were still having crowded campaign events? And yes. Joe, I mean, Joe Biden's answer was slimy politics. It was super slimy. <laughs> he, he kind of totally dodges the question. But what he goes on to do is deliver a very sober five-minute speech that's super erudite, uh, fluid. He pauses towards the end in a way that makes you wonder if he's having a senior moment, but then he delivers this sort of final zinger, which makes him come off as like that sagacious, grand, old, wise man who weighs his words very carefully and has to take a deep breath before he tells you the hard truth. I thought it was a stunning delivery. Of of like pretty conventional political uh, razzmatazz, so, but slimy and I dishonest, but skillful, super skillful, and and made a lot of scathing points against Trump that I think are correct. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, uh, one of the problems is, you know, one of the ideas is that if Americans vote on the economy, they'll vote for Trump, but if they vote on the plague, they'll vote against Trump, because America yeah. has performed quite poorly and. Part of what's silly about that is that it's not all Trump's fault. A lot of it is uh, the governor of New York. A lot of it is the sort of way that Pelosi and company racialized the issue of closing borders. I would say that's the biggest problem. A lot, uh, a lot of it is also the fact that the U.S. is in a massively interconnected uh, country that has uh, connections in its population all over the world. There's tons of expats who live there. It has also huge yeah. numbers of entry points. It's just a lot harder to manage. Yeah, so one of the irritating one of the irritating Democrat talking points that I really don't like is they keep going after Donald Trump for banning travel from from Wuhan and from China pretty early on. I mean, that was that was that was where he was like, "We've got to stop it," and and uh, and the the Democrats were saying, "No, that's racist," even though most Although, East Asian countries, Taiwan, Japan, but there were all these Americans that were then ex repatriated back from Wuhan, like two hundred thousand. Yes, and so now the Democrat talking point is. Yeah, Trump, you think you were so smart in banning travel from China, but you still let 200,000 people in. still, it was very porous. In. Yeah, you let in a lot of people but, still. But but this is crazy. Firstly, they're calling these people that are American citizens flying in from China. They're basically calling them foreigners. The Democrats who have defined themselves for the last four years on being the team that <laughs> that is like against racism. I mean, that's purely racist. This to is, define an American what, citizen as a foreigner yeah. because they've got yellow skin is this it's is, outrageous this, to me. It really this irritates. This is once again. This is once again the American parties flip flopping on a whim in order to is, serve the potential, is, the particulars of the moment. Uh, Trump was so fond of doing this. Yeah, logic. Logic is just really in the backseat of this conversation. Uh, but but and then the other point is like, how do you not repatriate your own citizens? And 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 anyway, this is to speak to your point of like, America is so interconnected that once the virus gets out into the world a little bit, it's, it's America is in a particularly hard place to stop it because it's it's kind of the m most cosmopolitan place on earth. Uh, yes, particularly so, in big cities like yeah, New York, Chicago, LA, DC, and so on. So so anyway, but I do think but I do think that the the the, the Trump team made serious mistakes, and I don't think that they've done any kind of good job at coming to terms with that. And uh, so, yeah, so and, and as long as that doesn't happen, uh, anything that went wrong in the virus, you know, their only option is to try and blame it on the governors uh, and, and then try and pivot the conversation to something else, like the economy or the riots, which they want to 
sort of argue are totally Black Lives Matter driven, which in a way is true. But of course, it's also true that you do now have vigilantes who are shooting people that are 17 years old. It's just like not the way you should do things. So America, I don't know. I feel very depressed about both sides right now. And I feel like uh... there's something crazy about Americans being so decided on who they want to vote for. Like, like how badly does your own team have to perform before you just die for a moment? (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good point. (laughs) That human beings can't do better. Like... I saw, oh. I saw a wonderful example, actually, of how data can be twisted in very partisan ways, which is quite funny. So yeah. there was some organization that studies conflict and unrest around the world. And they said, we looked at 10,300 protests across the United States, basically since June, when the Black Lives Matter thing uh, caught fire. And 95% of them were uh, peaceful. And yeah. so Democrats are eager to say, look, this proves our point. BLM yeah. has mostly been peaceful. This is good. Uh, and, and it shows that, this, that the Republicans are a bunch of filthy liars who are trying to characterize an entire movement as evil. But alternatively, the Republicans can equally come back and say, yes, Black Lives Matter has sparked 500 riots in the United States yes. since June. <laughs> and both and of then those combine things are that- true. And then combine that with a Harvard study that shows that every time you have a pattern and practice investigation into systemic racism in a particular police department, which is generally speaking a good thing. No, that's generally speaking a good thing. Mostly it works unless there's a Black Lives Matter protest happening outside, in which case, instead of the police being like, okay, you want to investigate us, let's see if we can do a better job. They're like, okay, you're saying we're all a bunch of racists and that we should die like pigs in blanket, we should fry like bacon. Well, guess what? We're going to guard the police station and you can guard your own homes Mm. and then Literally 450 excess murders have been recorded per year on that basis, which as the author of the study points out, Roland Fryer, which I've talked about before, an uh, African-American professor who's very keen to find evidence of racial bias, but didn't find any in terms of officer-involved shootings. He points out that this 450 excess deaths, which is, you know, comes after Black Lives Matter-style protests and pattern and practice investigations happening together, is more, more people have died as a result of that than... 20 years worth of lynchings under the Ku Klux Klan in the worst period of lynchings from like 1882 to 1902 Ooh. or something around yeah. there. I mean, Roland Fry is and, pointing and, out for a reason. He actually thinks black people's lives matter and he doesn't want them to die because the police are staying at home because you've got Black Lives Matter millionaires uh, getting endorsements for saying <laughs> defund the police. He's he's like, like the wrong people are being paid money here, you know, to yes. to and the wrong people are being given platforms like anti-science, anti trying to actually figure out what works and what doesn't work pro pro faith in your own voice uh as even if you're not a singer kind of kind of thinkers have just taken over the public square in the united states they've long taken over the public square in south africa Africa. and and here's the most perverse point that i want to make i think there's a negative i think there's a positive feedback loop here that we have to be very afraid of Okay, and and my tongue is in my cheek as I say this, but <laughs> metaphorically it's true. So you know, lockdown causes. Sorry, uh, load shedding causes more load shedding. You load shed, and it breaks all the stuff. I've, I just had the, all the transistors and the fuse box on the street stolen yeah, because it was load shedding. They could do. It's a nightmare. Which, stuff, everything goes wrong. Which means there's no money to build new power stations. Which means there's less <laughs> yeah, capacity. Yeah, which yeah. means there's more load shedding. Okay, so load shedding causes a negative more load cycle. Shedding. So here's one of the worries that I have about the coronavirus, 
which is that studies have shown in rats, and there's strong evidence to suggest the same is true in humans, that if if you bring up a community of rats in a perfectly sanitized environment where there is no flu or cold, then their IQ is lower. And the thought is that uh, uh, respiratory diseases want social animals. They want social mammals. Because antisocial mammals, they just bite each other. Yes. They just riot. It's just violent. And then they don't come into close contact often enough for the thing to pass on. And when they do come I into think, contact... I think, you, I think you did go over this a little bit in one of our earlier episodes yeah. um, about how COVID makes you smarter. So, well, or could. the common cold... The common cold and the common flu could make you smarter. And I think one of the problems is it might be that with the whole world having socially distanced and uh, and and locking down and so on, there has literally been no flu recorded in South Africa. I'm not saying coronavirus makes you smarter, but I think the common flu does. And, yes. and, and one of the ways you can tell that our IQ has fallen is that we believe that there's been no flu. But if there has been less flu, then it's like the human, the human IQ globally might have dropped several points in the last few years. <laughs> I mean, in the last few months. And it already wasn't high enough to sustain the complex mechanism of civilization <laughs> that we have going. And it will only make things worse. I think we've got a positive feedback loop going here of like human beings becoming more like antisocial rats that were brought up in, a, in an antiseptic environment where they just end up flipping eating each other's gizzards uh until the last one is so fat that he falls over this is this this is like unless we can all go on holiday and like i don't know just get like a common cold and like Everyone i don't know have a, a beer or two take a chill pull <laughs> smoke a joint like just flip in get off the high horse of thinking that you're right because so, you had the idea rather than that there's actual evidence to support it or because it suits your narrative rather than that it actually works. Like yeah, if we okay, could well, just get off that high I, horse, then maybe we could survive. But honestly, I don't think we're going to survive this, Nick. I think I think that we're going to go into a downward spiral of 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 of, of lower and lower <laughs> IQ driving further and further lockdowns. I think there's going to be another lockdown next year until no one ever gets the flu and then we're going to realize the flu was the only thing keeping civilization glued together uh, and we're going to realize it too late. So, uh, Gabriel, that's my on the on the the pro flu rant here. I, I must say, again, I'm a little bit suspicious of your claim here because uh, your solution is we should all just hang out and smoke some uh, smoke some joints, which is suspiciously what uh, hippies say. And you do kind of look like a hippie, so maybe you're just revealing your true color colors here. Um, oh, no, no, I, no, this this last thing this last thing is a little bit silly. Uh, it's definitely silly. But the the, the, the serious point <laughs> is that like is that somehow we went from figuring out how to do things like run a country and and uh, and, and do science and, and report on science. science. And, and poll people's opinions to a place where, you know, you might as well throw a dart at a golf course in the middle of the night uh, and, 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 the and, yeah. and see if you hit the hole and, and say that you're a genius if you do or that uh, your enemies are evil if you don't. You know, I mean, that's like... Well, that that's really, really the hole is where you threw the dart, despite what exactly. your lying eyes tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, one, no one should stick around until sunrise and see where it actually is. I'm telling you, it went straight in the hole. That, yeah. is, that, is, that is not normal. What, the, the, what is happening to humanity... I'm just trying to desperately hold on to the idea that this is not normal. 
This new normal thing is it's a new rubbish. I would like to go back to the normal where human beings know how to add two and two and not think that that's a race question and know how to like do basic <laughs> science. I want that. I miss that. You, and, and, and so so we're going to start wrapping up here. And I'm going to ask you for your recommendations in a minute. Um, but I just want to say that two and two thing equaling four being a race question. <laughs> go on Twitter and go to the Twitter feed of James Lindsay, who uh, spoke to our, our Liberal Club a while ago. And he he stated that two plus two equals four. And there was a big uh, backlash against him from a whole bunch of sort of woke people trying to prove that in fact no if you just sort of readjust the question slightly or interpret the answer more broadly you can show that 2 plus 2 does not equal 4 um, so, so it very quickly it's, became a race question it's not yeah, even it joke. really did we're not making it up this happened people call, basically call him a racist for saying I'm not talking about randos on Twitter these are university yeah. professors yeah mostly white university professors yes <laughs> anyway, um, so let me start with my recommendations. One is uh, the report that Gabriel wrote uh, called Because Black Lives Matter, What Institutions Need to Know About the BLM Global Network. Um, we launched it in July, and uh, you can go find it on the IRR website, irr.org.za slash reports. Um, and then also I want to recommend something that I was uh, I was reading just before the show, which is called The Lives of Martyrs on National Review by Kevin Williamson. Um, and he's just talking about how uh, sort of uh, this is a very kind of Gabriel point that uh, the creed of the the, the religion of uh, of Antifa sort of because of social uh, media and modern technology can kind of live the esteem team, as Gabriel would put it, can live uh, without any central organization. Um, and that this is a, a very real phenomenon that we're seeing in a lot of different kind of extremist organizations across the world. Um, in the 21st century. So those are what I would recommend. Uh, Gabriel, do you have anything to recommend to us? Yeah, so uh, I'm sort of, uh, I've got a book being posted my way called The Spirit of Trust, written by Robert Brandom, who is one of America's most sort of respected philosophers within the small niche of very serious philosophers. Um, he, yeah, I mean, the book's, Spirit of Trust, I'm not going to say anything else about the book uh, other than it's, it's it's sort of grounded in this idea of American pragmatism. Like, let's try and focus on what works. Let's, like, let's get off our high horse here and, and just and, and just learn to trust each other a little bit uh, and build <laughs> trust by by good faith and then punishing people who don't uh, adhere to yeah. that and so on. Wouldn't but that it's, nice? it's dedicated. I just want to read the dedication as my last words. It's dedicated to John McDowell, who is by far – the most excellent South African philosopher. He is a rock star at the one of the top-rated American universities, and it's just crazy how almost no South Africans know his name. And uh, Robert Brandom's dedicated his his magnum opus, The Spirit of Trust, uh, sort of to John McDowell, and this is the dedication that I'll just quickly read out. This is for John McDowell, my closest friend and dearest colleague for 30 years, who has loyally suffered along with along with me, through the labyrinthine evolution of this story. Even though he thinks I've got it wrong, and the peculiar genre of systematic hermeneutic metaconceptual creative nonfiction writing I'm practicing here is in any case not his cup of tea. I, I like that dedication. People, people who disagree with each other but work together and, and are, are very sincere in the warmth they have for one another. 
and and very clinical in the in the disagreements that they in the arguments that they conduct with one another. I think that it's just a little bit of inspiration. Yes, definitely. And check out the spirit yeah. of trust if you like. I would I would definitely agree with that. Um, anyway, thank you everyone for listening to us blather on for another sort of seventy minutes. Uh, we hope that we were entertaining and insightful and. Uh, all the reasons that you tune into us, uh, it's uh, we love feedback from you guys, um, particularly if it's uh, witty and and uh, and uh, yeah, uh, makes us I'm, feel. I, I'm always asking. <laughs> I'm always asking for feedback. Like, if you think we got anything wrong, tell us. Shout at us. Like, we we want to learn. Uh, but I think Nicholas is right. Like, things are so bleak. Look, if you if you just want to say hi, then you're also very welcome. Uh, it's nice to see our, our number of listeners is, is growing as well. So uh, yes. I think that's a nice sign that people are sharing this material. Um, and yeah, I'll keep that up too. Yes, uh, please, please leave us a review on whatever podcast app you listen to, uh, especially if we're good. We want you to leave, <laughs> leave a review then. Um, Look, even stars. if we're not good, we want to get more famous so that we can debunk like, like the world's greatest institutions, like just talking complete nonsense. Uh, because if we can just apply a bit of pr pressure, maybe maybe they'll start getting it right, and then maybe the world will start making sense, and then we can all get back to sort of playing cricket. Well, maybe that's what maybe that's you. What you want? I just want an emotional outlet for the torment that is my uh, my mind. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Cheers, everyone. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Kr -kr, kr -kr, kr -kr.